It is to Cole's point in, in many ways. And I think what we're excited about through Legacy Group from an investment standpoint is so untapped in terms of opportunities versus capital that's coming into those opportunities. But we're now seeing those trends shifting a little bit where people like SoftBank are coming in, people like Sequoia Capital are coming in, seeing some of the success of the businesses that are being built here. I really think, you know, my perspective being on the ground, you've had about basically 20 years where entrepreneurship at entrepreneurship at scale in particular in Colombia could really take off and you're starting to see some of the money follow that. You are listening to the Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Jake Harris. And when I'm not hosting this podcast, I'm the founder of an award-winning real estate investment firm and actively investing in commercial real estate all over the country. This show allows me to interview, dive deeper, and deconstruct many passive wealth principles, not just from investing, but tactics, strategies, and many fascinating ways in which people have achieved levels of passive wealth. Through my nearly 20-year career as a professional investor, I've built an amazing network of people and come across some super savvy investors. Not only do they have a unique stance on the marketplace, but look at the same problems we all face and many times have come up with a simple but unconventional approach to solving them. This is why I'm so excited for this podcast. It allows me to unpack and have a more in-depth conversations with these special guests. Selfishly, It's a platform where I get to ask the questions that would never come up in a normal conversation, and I get a chance to learn and dissect their best strategies, and you get to be a part of that process as well. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversations, and these amazing passive wealth principle lessons. Welcome to the podcast show. I get the chance to interview some world travelers, some private equity uh, investors that are living down in Medellin, Colombia, uh, Adam Jason and Cole Shepard, uh, the owners of Legacy Group. I'm you know, very excited, a chance to interview them. Uh, we're going to dive into some details about living in Hong Kong and China and how Latin America as a whole is this unbelievable emerging market of opportunity. Capitalism is is taking control, investing into commodities, coffee, NFTs, how digital investments are going to remake the, the metaverse and all of that combining with, you know, just really nerdy investment talk into this episode with Adam Jason, Cole Shepard, the Legacy Group, and the Catching Knives. Look forward to jumping into it. People, boys, girls, uh, I am very excited for the guests that I have on the podcast today. Uh, it, it is actually a very unique experience in how I got connected to, to both Cole and Adam. Uh, I was actually trying to buy some hotels from them. So we, we scheduled up, they had some hotels for sale in Puerto Rico. And so we scheduled and I was like, I'm in, let's go meet up in Puerto Rico. And as we were flying or, or the day or two before, 
their internal partner who had kind of first right of refusal was able to, you know, they structured the deal and bought out their hospitality portion of their business. And so they were like, we have nothing to show you. So you're flying, like everything's all scheduled. Like, what do you want to do? Um, do you want to go meet in Colombia? And I was like, no, not really. I kind of scheduled to go to Puerto Rico. So we ended up going to Puerto Rico. We met up. I didn't really know Cole at the time, you know, happened to the, the chance. And then we just hung out for a couple of days and we had a really fun fishing trips. By fun, I mean, we went out in a washing machine of, of <laughs> turbulent skis and we're like, I just had like this really grandiose ideas of catching, you know, like these giant, you know, Dorado fish or I don't even know if Dorado or in the, the, the off of uh, Puerto Rico there, but it was like, we didn't catch anything. And then we just violently rocked around the entire time. And I think everybody ended up puking except for Cole. Cole's just yeah. like, you know, this is, yeah, you know, yeah, I remember this. So thank you guys. I'm super excited for this show. And I want to dive in and get a little bit of, Cole, let's see your bio background uh, individually. And then I'll take that and maybe uh, pinpoint on a few questions uh, within that uh, bios, and then we'll dive into some very, very interesting topics that I think people are, are excited to hear about because of the nature of the world today. So, uh, Adam, why don't you jump into your 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 bio uh, for the listeners' sake? Sure. Originally from from Buffalo, New York, and, and thanks, Jake, to you for for having us here. I hope this is less rocky than the boat was than when we <laughs> for the fishing trip but excited to be here excited to talk to you said so originally from from buffalo new york attorney by trade practiced in in the u.s for eight years capital markets sec if we're focusing on kind of our professional backgrounds here capital markets sec attorney taking companies public raising lots of money on public markets private private deals really focused in the kind of S&P 500, large Wall Street investment bank in terms of, of a client base. Spent some time in Cleveland working there, Dallas, Houston. We're now in Columbia. And kind of the story there is having a month between the job that I had in Dallas and Houston to do some traveling, come down here, really fell in love with it. Found myself at kind of a crossroads of my career and deciding, do I become a partner at the law firm? Do I go work internally for a client? What do I kind of want to do with my life going forward? I looked a few years kind of down the road, saw the young partners that were ahead of me and really became apparent to me that not, not only was that not striking me as something that I really wanted for my life, but I knew it would always be there if I wanted to go back. So decided to come down to Columbia January 2018 to take on some, some, some new businesses and new experiences, linked up with Cole, who at the time was kicking off the capital raise to basically get our green coffee company off the ground. We've since run with that, made some additional investments down here, going on four years now, happily married and, and really enjoying the life. So like, as you mentioned, 
what kind of what brought us together is, is our mutual interest in not only investments and hospitality and, and various projects, both, you know, kind of foreign and domestic, but also our interest in personal growth and kind of all the things that I know that you talk to your audience about, as well as, as having a strong financial foothold to kind of springboard your life from. So I'd like to, to dive into that a little bit as far as that, that bio and obviously the fact that we've got to, to know each other a little bit. So kid from Buffalo. Yes. Also interesting. I don't think you mentioned in there that you were a, a D1 uh, you know, athlete, a, a football player. D three, D three, but thank you for the. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. But you know, so how does a kid from Buffalo get and become, you know, a, a securities attorney? Hey, you know, I I grew up really kind of. Um, my background was always was a first priority was basically always sports, like education and that kind of thing. Definitely kind of played second fiddle. Uh, everybody kind of influential in my life at the time was either a coach or a teacher actually, you know, took football, used it as a reason to kind of go to college and do that and, and started studying phys ed and health back in at, at Ithaca. And then I got to a point kind of similar with, you know, the, the law path where you just say, okay, is this really what I see for myself in the future? Deciding to go to law school in many ways was for me buying some time for kind of what I wanted to do. But I took that same discipline that I had in sports, the same competitive instincts and really applied it to excelling at, at law school at the time. So that's where my focus shifted. I got a great job offer to go and work in, in Cleveland at Jones Day, which at the time was the largest law firm in, in the world and have always had, I guess, an interest, uh, especially kind of kicking it off in law school and kind of things I participated in at the time exploring business more, working with companies. As I worked with those big enterprises, I've seen kind of the, the need for help for young companies and entrepreneurial endeavors to get off the ground and get access to capital and, and kind of go from those things. But I would say 30% planned, 70% chance, a good chunk of, of, of that 70% is, is just kind of following where things lead you at times. Um, and I've definitely done that, but try to take advantage of opportunities as they present themselves. So I, I'm imagining this, you're, you're young, hungry attorney chasing, chasing the next deal, the chasing the next opportunity using that your, your sports kind of uh, competitive nature. So you're in your twenties, doing funding fortune, you said S&P companies, other things like that. So what's that like being a young, uh, you know, securities attorney sitting down with, you know, a CFO or CEO of a company that they've built their company forever that's trying to IPO or bring on capital or do something like that. And then there's this kid, you, that's kind of like, so what's that like, you know, in your own words, um, that experience? I think I was fortunate to, fortunate to never really be intimidated by it. That's probably the greatest benefit of, of finding myself in that kind of position early on is you're forced to talk to people in, in those positions, whether it's a CFO, CEO, and the fact that they look to you for Council is both 
interesting, but also something that you really got to push yourself. It, it obviously teaches you, you have to be prepared. You know, you can kind of get any question at any time. Attention to detail is incredibly important, but, you know, always kind of putting yourself mentally in a position from a knowledge standpoint and just being prepared of, of, you know, I know what these questions are coming. I have to sound smart to this person, or they're going to think that I don't know what they're going to talk that I'm talking about. And and the partners at the law firm that I work for are going to hear about it. But, you know, it's, um, I don't think they would be hiring us if they knew all the answers. So it's, it was, it was always my job to, to have them for the, for those folks. Yeah. To, to subject matter expert. Correct. You know, uh, well, you know, and obviously, you know, you, you ended up, um, down in Columbia. So, you know, obviously you're looking at that path of becoming partner. So for, you know, maybe walk some people through, I, I have some understanding of that path of what somebody needs to do to become a partner in a law firm, but, you know, explain to you know other people listening like what does that look like so that's the what you're staring down is the opportunity or the potential that's one path versus going to columbia and then how did you um ultimately decide that that one or the other yeah the firm that i was at jones day required 10 years working there before you could make partner so i was there for i guess it was about about eight years, you know, it's, it's really, they say it's 10 years to make partner, but it's really 20 to become somebody of importance in terms of client development and really growing the business. You just kind of go through the ranks of elevating the level of kind of work that you're doing on, on clients behalf, but the ability to really contribute, I think, to the bottom line and grow the business and interact, think strategically, you really got to be there for an extended period of time. And I was just too antsy to wait for that, you know, 20 years or so before you're kind of in that position, you know, by nature, a lot of the decision makers at these S&P 500 companies or these large banks are also in that, you know, 45 to 50 year, 50 year range. So they're, they're more kind of trusting in their peers and those kind of things. And I just didn't see that as a, I felt like I had gotten out of the experience, what I needed to, to be able to springboard into something else. And like I mentioned before, knowing that things didn't work out with what Cole and I are doing, or I didn't like Columbia, you know, I go back to Texas and get a job at another law firm and, you know, what's no harm, no foul. In fact, I've boosted, I think my, my resume and my breadth of experience. So, you know, it's a, it's a good world for some people, but I just needed something, something different. That's awesome. Cole, you know, uh, I, I, somebody asked, uh, for me to describe you and, and I feel like, you know, obviously Adam and I initially connected together and I, there's some kinship there, but also the same thing. I feel like a, a kinship, a brotherhood to you as well as like, is kind of like a gunslinger, you know, like going out and conquering the wild west and the frontier, uh, super excited for the audience dive into your background and then what we're going to do is as we're going to take through similar through adam is you know converge that to columbia and then we can start unpacking some things from there first of all i, I love the nickname gunslinger so if we can keep using that in the future that would be great you know my, my background is very similar to adam's you know when i started out of graduate school at pwc which is similar to adam's story 
uh, you know, is the largest consulting and accounting firm in the world. Uh, so I spent a couple of years in the U.S., wanted to learn about financial services, moved to Bermuda, did banking audits, insurance audits, you know, captive insurance, hedge funds, trust companies. Uh, and, you know, you kind of get addicted to moving abroad. You get addicted to meeting new, interesting people, learning new things. And, and then after that, I, I took a role in M&A in Hong Kong. Um, and so every time I move, you know, I'll move without knowing anybody. Uh, and usually it's a, it's a quest for knowledge. You know, it's not, it's not really monetary focused. So I remember when I moved to Hong Kong, I was about 28 years old. Uh, I had a role from one of the partners I talked to on the phone. He said, uh, you got the role, but you need to be here in a week. I don't, I don't speak Chinese. I knew no one in Hong Kong. You don't really have a lot of money when you're 28 years old. But he said, you buy me a ticket, I'll be in Hong Kong in a week. And you're in Hong Kong in a week. So I spent about four years between Hong Kong and Beijing. Uh, what I would do is primarily manage M&A transactions for financial services companies, mainly corporate acquisition. There'd be private equity guys that play as well, but primarily corporate acquisition. So you'd advise on buying banks, insurance companies, asset managers. I've done some weird deals like uh, gold mines in Xinjiang province, Xinjiang province in China. I've done skyscrapers in Shenzhen. You know, we've looked at Islamic banking units in Malaysia are selling out in Dubai. Uh, but it gave me an experience to really travel around the world. And it, you know, it kind of feeds that need to learn and, and do new things. Um, but I got to the same period and same stage of life that Adam was at, about 31. And you got to start building a partner case at PwC or, or really you need to go. You know, you, it's not one of those things where you can just farm out your work and just stay in the farm all day. Really, you need to be growing or you need to be going. So for me, uh, I wanted that entrepreneurial push. I didn't have, for instance, I, I didn't love that, you know, you can advise on a billion dollar transaction. And if, you know, the transaction doesn't work, we still get paid, right? And you, you don't look, you, don't, you look at the transaction at a singular point in time, your advice, the transaction happens or not, and you're rolled off and your job is to find another transaction. You know, if it goes really well, you know, you're not compensated. If it goes wrong, you're not penalized. I didn't love that at the time. So I came down to Colombia. My brother got married in Cartagena, came down, started checking it out. I was looking at moving with the firm. Um, and when I came down to Colombia, I saw just a lot of gaps in the market, kind of used the knowledge I've learned at PwC about financial services, specifically related to, you know, how financial services develop the real estate market saw some anomalies in the market. Uh, and so basically like within two weeks after coming back to Hong Kong after my brother's wedding, I was like, all right, I got to roll out of PwC, liquidate IRAs, liquidate 401ks, liquidate all of my investment accounts. And that's make some bets on me. So I came down, started businesses with a friend of a friend that I met from, he was a friend of a friend of mine in Hong Kong and started doing my own businesses down here in Colombia. You know, you're learning Spanish by day. I went to a, a private university to learn Spanish four hours a day. And then you start businesses. In about, I'd say, two and a half years into Colombia, that's when I met Adam. And so that's when things started to, to really elevate in quality and the level of business I was able to do. So... Man, there's a lot of a lot of things, and obviously the the, the chance that we've dove into some of these stories. So, take me mm -hmm. back to college. You're sure. from North Carolina. That's right. You know, you you went to school there, grad school. You, you played baseball sports. 
I, I played when I was younger, but I didn't play in, in university. Wasn't good enough. What what happened in college that led you on this path to financial services? Was it just, you know, you had a, a hankering sure. for audited and captive insurance when you're in college at 18? Or <laughs> <laughs> Not so much. I always learned. Uh, I loved learning about financial markets. So when I would read books from the fair amount of times that I read books when I'm 18 years old, I'd read about financial, financial information. I started trading stocks and doing my own like Roth IRAs, trying to do like tax structures when I was probably 17 or 18, started diving into, you know, tracking mutual funds. I mean, it's kind of like you, you start as a kid when you're like, I would rank all my baseball cards, you know, and be like, oh, Cal Ripken's better than Ken, Rip- Ken Griffey Jr. because he's got this batting average. So I need to put him one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. And then you kind of move into that when you get older and say, you know, I can't really collect baseball cards, you know, as a freshman in college. So you start ranking stocks and mutual funds and ETFs or whatever I could get my hands on at the time. Didn't really have any money, but, you know, you, you could still make the trades. So I always loved the financial services market. So when I was in college, I, I did basically what the equivalent of a double major in, a, in accounting and finance. So accounting is one that you always have a role. I mean, account, you'll never have a problem with a job, but I took all the courses to do the finance graduate degree as well. So I got to learn, you know, sitting classes about portfolio management, you know, derivative, how to manage derivative positions or whatever. Same thing that the MBAs take for finance degrees. Um, And so I think it's more of an interest of learning how, I guess, learning how life in the world is financed and learning how capital flows move. Because as you learn more, you find out that dictates a lot of both world history and just the just how lives happen worldwide. A lot of it happens due to financial flows. Yeah, that's, um, some people know this maybe, and I don't know if you guys know this, but you know, I went to grad school, international real estate and finance was my degree specifically around kind of international, you know, really just hedge of currencies and other things. So like, I get what you guys are doing um, and understand. And at least we, I think when people ask about that, I said it was like learning a new language, like you were going to school to, or uh, how the world is structured and it's zeros and spreadsheets and other things like that. And then, you know, equity multiples or, uh, you know, whatever the certain terminology that is used in, in finance. And so just understand it was like learning private equity was the language that I learned in finance. So um, I wanted to, to peel back. So you're, you're in Hong Kong, you're in Beijing, you're buying banks and gold mines and ag, you know, kind of things like that. You like Latin America, you decide, let's do Latin America. So what, how, how does that drive in? And not only that, you're now all of a sudden outside of PwC, you're going to go trade on your own dime. Sure. Let, let me take you through. Let me take you through the thought process of why I, I wanted emerging markets to begin with, or I guess not so much emerging market is kind of a, a historical term, but a developing market, something where the market's not efficient. Um, and whether I was going to stay with PwC and M and A or do something else, I wanted to be in emerging markets. And so part of my job back then was you look at market, especially in banking, because it's a very it's a macro business. You look at things, products that are underpenetrated in a market, and you look at macro themes. So I always liked when things weren't as efficient. So I was looking at Southeast Asia at the time and Latin America primarily were the, were the two markets that I wanted. The reason why is I saw in kind of an oversaturation of capital 
in certain areas of the world. Hong Kong was a great example. And the example I always use is, you know, a lot of my peers were, let's say, wealthy Chinese families. You know, the kids go down to Australia for the weekend or they come down to Hong Kong from, from Beijing for the weekend and they'll buy apartments with their pocket money. Pocket money is what you call allowance from the, from the families. And they'll buy, you know, apartments for a million, two million US for one caps. You know, that's, that's the cap rate in Hong Kong, one caps if you, if you rent those out. And once you start seeing the amount of capital at play and the deployment mechanisms they use and what is it, uh, I'd say, a, a profitable investment for some of these guys, you say there's too much capital at play. And what you'd see in developing markets is you'd have a lack of capital the, in, in, in two types of capital. One would be you know, capital like money, and the other is human capital. You have huge brain drain gaps from developing markets. So the thesis always was, if I'm going to go and do something from scratch, Let's go somewhere where one, there's less competition, somewhere that, you know, my money matters, even if I don't have tons of it, enough to where you can make a splash and do something special. But another one that says, I don't have to be an SME of artificial intelligence in Silicon Valley and compete with those guys and say, look, I have a general business mind that can adapt to certain businesses and I know what I can do and can't do, but can I play in businesses that I understand and build something successful? So that's kind of why I like developing market. The real reason to pick Latin America, other than Southeast Asia, I like the cultural aspect to where I could learn. I know my Spanish was terrible at the time. I spoke like eighth grade Mexican Spanish from North Carolina public school. So, you know, not good. <laughs> so, but, you know, you can come down to Colombia and, you know, within a year or two, you can really learn Spanish. You can understand what's going on. You know, if I'm doing business in Vietnam or you know Indonesia and I'm needing to read contracts, you know, there is no there's no way I'm gonna see it in real time and be able to do it quickly. And I noticed that when I was trying to study Mandarin in, in Beijing, the, the pickup time for the language is just is just too long, right? And you know, the proximity to the United States where I had a bit of nexus and you know, I have colleagues and you could get assistance if something goes awry or whatever made, made, you know, South America attractive in Colombia specifically at the time, you know, they had a massive foreign currency arbitrage with the U S dollar. Their currency just got crushed recently. I was looking at real estate and I was just looking at price per square meter of stuff. And you're like, man, this is like 5% of what Manhattan prices would be for the same, for the same structure. So decided to take a shot down here instead of Southeast Asia. So you're, did you land in Medellin? Did you go to Bogota? Where did you go? And then what, what did you start doing when you started, you know, trading in the market or doing, what'd you do with your yeah. I started, um, I started buying uh, apartments first, mostly at foreclosure sales and what's called a Juzgado down here in Colombia, which is like a, a judge's office. It'd be the equivalent of our like public public office in the US where you have to go through, you know, a formal auction process to buy foreclosed real estate. That was incredibly difficult. <laughs> incredibly difficult. You know, I probably went to auctions 50 times with the intent to buy. I got two properties in a one-year period, right? And what you try to find is anomalies in the pricing markets. There's no Zillow here. There's no MLS. Um, and, you know, I chose Medellin because one, the pricing is about 30 to 40% cheaper than Bogota. 
There was more, there was more, there's a lot more capital in Bogota. And frankly, from living between Bogota and Medellin, I've been to both several times. The lifestyle in Medellin was a little bit more relaxed, less traffic, weather was better. It's less costly to get started. They had good, and especially when I first started, I needed to go to university all the time to learn Spanish because, you know, you, and if you're going to spend a lot of time in South America, you really should learn like probably like C1 intermediate Spanish. Um, so I picked Medellin mostly for that reason. You know, I, I figured if I get 40% off on real estate, I can do 40% more deals with the cash flow I had. And if I needed to leverage up more, you know, then you go out to market and, and pull capital from elsewhere, but get some deals under your belt. And Medellin, I think, was a, a solid choice to start with. So you started trading real estate. Then what's the next steps that you're kind of rolling through? In- sure. So then I started trading. I had some colleagues that were doing trading with fresh cut flowers. So most people don't know Colombia is like the number two exporter of fresh cut flowers in the world. So if you go to Walmart or Sam's Club or wherever and buy roses, there's a really good chance all those flowers come from Colombia. Hardly anyone knows. Um, So I had some colleagues that were doing trading and they wanted to start doing trading more uh, with the East. Right. So they had client client flows in Japan, South Korea, China. I still had some contacts over there. I could structure transactions. Uh, and so I was doing kind of one on real estate side and the other on, on trading fresh cut flowers. Did that for about a year, started trading coffee, and then got the opportunity to structure what is now the Green Coffee Company. Um, really as a, as a private equity, like an asset management product structured as an I, I private equity structure. Right. You had we had real estate investors who were looking for collateralized asset exposure in Colombia. They were they were comfortable with commercial real estate, but they wanted something that that demanded a higher yield. So really, from my experience in Colombia, kind of transitioned from real estate to learning how physical commodity trading works on an international scale, funding it with your own piggy bank, and then structuring it to starting a real company. And raising, when we first did the first raise, it was about a little over $5 million. I think we committed about 5.8 million US from, from US investors. And then we grew up from there. You know, on this, this past raise, we're going to do over 15 million bucks in, in raise in the last year. So companies grown up exponentially since then. So that, that kind of takes to the merging of, of, you know, Adam and, and, and Cole there. So Adam, you know, Cole decided to do his own security documents. I think he cobbled together some from other things like that. So you come in, you know, and, and uh, Cole at least had the the wherewithal to bring in an expert uh, to look at that. So tell me, like, how does that happen? You guys join together and what, you know, how do you take that from Cole's gunslinging out in the street, buying auction properties, things like that, physical commodity to now he's got himself into some coffee company to now you're coming in and taking it to this, maybe the, the 2.0 version of it. Yeah. You heard from, from, from Cole's story that he really did the heavy lifting and the hard part of all this and making those initial bets and, and things that happened down here. And he did a good job with the security documents. But basically, we're at the point of, can we basically seed fund this deal? And Cole needed some some help with that. I was back in the US at the time working at the law firm down in Houston. And just in my free time, kind of knowing what was going on down here, anticipating potentially coming back, I had gotten connected to Cole through the real estate work that we were doing. And he needed 
you know, some call it some expert guidance on kind of getting that that launch of the offering off the off the ground, so they could get the initial capital for the investment. You know, we linked up pretty immediately in terms of kind of common interests, common backgrounds. As you heard, when I came down to Columbia, I lived with Cole for ten months. So you know, we got to be good friends as well as business partners, and kind of have have not um, taken our foot off the gas since. So I, you know, disclosure to those listening, I did invest into the green coffee company. And obviously we, we spent some time in Puerto Rico together. And that's kind of where I, man, I was like, I like these guys. I, you know, I, I just vibe, same thing, you know, the, the, the kinship, the connection. And it was like, well, what else are you, you know, you didn't have hotels for sale. So what else? And that's obviously this, the green coffee company. And I was like the, uh. Of the, you know, zoom in there, the, the Gaia de Oro, uh, I call it the, the, the golden cock, um, people in the office don't appreciate that. Sometimes I don't tell HR that, so we'll maybe have to edit that out for, for the, you know, appropriate audience and virgin ears that are listening into the podcast. Um, it, which is, I, I just, you know, it was one of those unique experiences. So we, we brought some investors down or, you know, friends, but basically some of my buddies from the mastermind group that were connected through. And it was like, Hey, how about Thursday? We go to, to Medellin, you know, and go check out these coffee farms because, you know, you know, being the voice for, you know, kind of a bigger collective. Um, and it was awesome. Like, you know, and if, if people follow me on my social medias or some of these other things like that, we put together some, some video stuff of it, but you know, we flew down. I, I told my wife, I think my wife was like seven months pregnant or something. I was like, Oh, Hey, uh, I'm going to Medellin on Thursday. I'll be back on Sunday. And she's like, okay, just don't get kidnapped. Um, you know, Columbia not necessarily has the, the, best press, uh, on the global scale, or at least in the U S we came in there, we flew in. Medellin was awesome. We took helicopters out to the coffee farms. We landed on kids soccer fields and had the, the, you know, Pablo Escobar, you know, military guarding the helicopters and, and what you guys are doing makes a lot of sense to me because, and maybe if you can dive into that, as far as the coffee, production in Colombia. Most people know that Colombia, they don't know about the flowers, but they know coffee, Colombian coffee. And, but the vast majority of them are operating in a very unsophisticated, and maybe that's to Cole's point of the developing the human capital, the lack of real capital. So like, what is that origin and how you've grown that now taking it into, you know, uh, eight figures of, of, of value in a, a few year time period? I can, I can go if you'd like me to. So yeah, you know, Jake, you were here in July, even since then, the company is, is, has grown, grown tremendously. When you were here, we were the third largest coffee producer in the country. And really it's a consolidation of farms and infrastructure. As you mentioned, the market is very fragmented. Most farmers here in the country own, you know, three acres or less of, of farmland. But what Cole was able to do and what we've been doing since is find these large landholding families that pass the farms down through generations. Interest in being coffee farmers fades as, as you get further down kind of the generational tree and you have 
more of a family's total net worth locked up in, in those farms. People are looking to sell. So, so we've been able to buy farms at a discount, build the infrastructure that we were starting when you were here, which we've now implemented because of the capital we raised last year to really make it the most sophisticated coffee processing operation in Colombia. And, and we think and we think globally. So we leverage kind of our ability to bring money to the country, ability to kind of do things right and build teams, access the, the US markets to be able to make an impact in a market that's that's in an industry that's been very decentralized for an extended period of time. And we continue to see more opportunities in the market. We did an acquisition in December that doubled the size of the farm. So we now have about 5,000 acres of land within the operation have got to number two in the country and have brought about $25 million of, of capital to Columbia to invest in the business, which has been great for the business, the community we're in, the industry. People are starting to take notice both in Colombia and outside. So we're kind of not kind of very much excited about where things are going. And it was obviously great having you here and seeing that and, and loving not only the operation, but also the, the country and the opportunities that exist within the, the city and what we're doing broadly at, at both GCC and, and through Legacy Group, where we're making additional investments in, in companies down here. So I'd like to, to dive into that as far as legacy, because it's, you know, you're a platform type company, or maybe I don't know if that's what you call it, but legacy has GCC, but you have other businesses. And to be perfectly honest, I was blown away by some of the other businesses, the, the, the polygonists, the, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit of, of Columbia, or at least Medellin is, you know, walking around is that seeing how capitalism, how, you know, they're embracing it. And, you know, like you said, it's, it seems like there's so much opportunity in, in that market. Like, it's like you walk around everywhere and it's like, oh, you could build hotels, you could do, you know, condo projects, you could do coffee, you could do technology, you can do arbitrage, just bringing internet to, you know, like cities. Like, it just seems like there's a vastness of, of possibilities. So maybe if you can dive into like legacy and polygonus a little bit about what that is and how, you know, maybe like NFTs and digital kind of components. And then what I'd like to do is also kind of take an overall look and we'll follow up with that is like market trends of LATAM as a whole. So legacy and kind of its other companies. And if Cole, you maybe want to dive into that, how that kind of. You know, we'll go, we'll go it step by step. Yeah. I think. So what Adam and I like to do is, I mean, really what we talk about doing is investing in early stage companies. So Polygonus is a good example of that. This is a company that Adam and I seed funded in 2019. At the time, it was three very, very talented guys. Uh, now, I'm actually sitting at Polygonus's office now in the nicest penthouse office in the entire city that we bought last year. And now they got about 100 employees. Really, the, the name of the game for these guys is digital entertainment, mostly surrounding around the creation of video games. They have a couple contracts for NFT-related video games, metaverse projects, the creation of NFTs. Um, and also, they have movie studios. I mean, so right behind me right here, they have about six 
studios that are capable of doing, whether you're doing podcasts, you're doing recordings for reggaeton artists, um, whatever, they have Netflix quality studios that you can record in. They have a part of the business that's called the Academy. Um, one, of the, one of the things you'll find in the digital technology business world here is eventually you run out of human capital. So they created a business called the Academy about a year ago when COVID was really in its prime, when none of the kids could go to school. You know, the, the university sector of Columbia has money to spend and they need kids to, to learn something. So they picked up the basically all the digital e-learning rights for the whole city of Medellin to teach everything related to how to work in the Netflix production or movie production of video games, basically the whole, the whole factory. So these guys went from, you know, just showing us how to basically thematically do this two years ago, and now they're really doing it. And it's, it's massively exciting. So to step back into kind of where to Adam and I fit in, you know, what we did is, is finance the seed rounds and kind of we sit as advisors to those guys. I mean, these guys really are a group of high-end software engineers, high-end digital artists, uh, and they are massively talented at what they do. Um, but they don't have someone like Adam and myself to advise them on, on key business things. You know, if somebody comes in and says, look, I want to buy everything for $15 million, it might have a big price tag attached to it. But Adam and I would come in and say, hey, do you really want to do this? Let's look at the pros and cons. This is what can exist in the market. And we get to act as in kind of an active role um, as these companies develop. So kind of what legacy is and what we're trying to do is we do a mixture of things like Green Coffee Company, we founded and we and we built up over time and eventually we'll exit and hopefully make a bunch of money for our investors. With our own capital, we'll always look to seed fund early company deals. And when it gets to a level that we feel like LP, individual accredited US investors could get in, that's when we'll run funding rounds for, for companies like Polygonis. So as of right now, I would say Green Coffee probably takes up about you know, 90% of Adam and I's time. 10% we get to watch these guys do amazing things behind me. And we get to advise them on, on different areas of the business world, how to expand internationally, how to do tech structures, whatever. And then, you know, we always get to analyze new businesses. I mean, we were in a meeting last night analyzing a potential new company that potentially needed seed funding. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to do it or not, but we're always in the market to say, look, this is a new area of the world or the business world that could be interesting in South America or maybe just Colombia. And we'll always keep our eyes open. Are you guys enjoying the show so far? Look, two of the most common questions I get asked are, where can I find good deals to invest into? And is it possible to invest alongside of our deals as a passive investor? So my team and I wanted to put together an insider list where you can get first access to investment opportunities, due diligence resources, and best practices for those interested in investing passively into deals like the ones we talk about on the show. Those deals are mostly in the commercial real estate space, but I oftentimes get exclusive access to deals of people like the guests on my show. If those deals pass our criteria, we pass them on to those on the list. To gain access to this insider list, all you have to do is go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. We also host events, dinners, and give away VIP access to events that I'm speaking at or attending. 
Once again, it's www.catchkniveswithans.com and hit the big orange button on the top right of the page. For those that are serious about passive wealth building, we'll see you on the inside. Now, back to the show. I think that kind of pull, pulls into the thing, the market trends of, of LATAM in general is that, so I have an overarching thesis that um, North America and South America are going to have to become a lot more friendly with each other as let's just say that, you know, the East and the West, uh, you know, China and the U.S. are creating a, an IP or digital war against each other. And that's going to lead to more um, volatility, you know, and trepidation. And, and obviously, you know, post-COVID, I think it revealed some of those things that how much of the manufacturing, how many of the supplies, the raw materials are coming out of China or the East exclusively. And China's looking to remake the world in the image of China. And they feel like they've just had a, a bad hundred years. You know, like they're like for thousands of years, they've been a global power. They just had a bad century. And now they're going to reestablish uh, their, their uh, dominance uh, on the planet. The United States is not going to sit down. And so there's going to create more. And my belief is, is volatility. And I think Spanish-speaking countries, Latin America, Mexico, Colombia, Chile, Argentina, others. And then when you look at that is some of those countries are still suck. Like, I mean, from uh, the, the rule of law, politics, overturns, you know, currency hedges, pages like, you know, Argent, Argentine peso – you can't even use that. Like, I mean, cause they default on every national debt they've ever had ever. So you can't base any business in Argentine pesos. So maybe if you can dive into some of what you guys are seeing real market trends for Latin America as a whole and how you see this, you know, kind of manifesting forward from call it that emerging market or developing market uh, moving forward in the next five or 10 years or why you're hanging out in Colombia. Sure. I'll start. I'm sure Adam will have some additives to throw in there as well. I, I do generally agree. I think there'll be, a, I haven't seen any research to say that a decoupling from some kind of decoupling from China will, will have to happen. There's too much political tension. Uh, it's getting, it's getting more difficult, I think, for large company CEOs to justify doing a significant amount of their business there. So I would say a complete, I've never read anything to say a full decoupling is likely, but even a partial decoupling, they're just so linked that it'll have massive global effects, especially for anyone doing business in America. I agree with the thesis as well, that I think you'll have certain Latin American countries that can capitalize on that. Um, let's take for manufacturing, for instance, there are only certain countries in Latin America that could pick up on that capability. You know, you need a, a fairly sophisticated manufacturing infrastructure to pick up some of the stuff in China. You know, most people think of China as being, you know, low-end products or getting developed there, something that's really cheap that we that's what we grew up with in the in the 90s or the late 80s or something. But in reality, some of the most high-tech production materials and, and products are actually produced in China. The lower end products really have all been moved actually before any of this, we even talked about China decoupling a decade ago, all of that low-end production really moved to places like Bangladesh, Vietnam, other areas in Southeast Asia really a long time ago. 
So if you're going to move production, let's say the mid-grade production products from China, you only have a couple places to go. I, th- I, I would say there's three countries in, in Latin America in, in specifically that will, will benefit. One would be Mexico. I would say it's probably the largest beneficiary. Uh, I've spent, Adam and I both spent some time in Mexico. I love the, I love the market. If we were going to go outside of Colombia in a, in a Spanish-speaking Latin American market, I think I would push that we look at at things in Mexico. Uh, Colombia will be a natural choice, you know, a natural U.S. ally where we are. I mean, you have strong infrastructure here, developed economy. It functions well. And the last is is Brazil. The only thing about Brazil, it's any anyone who tells me they do business there, it's like doing business on Mars. You know, if you're there, you're you're on your own. You're on your own continent. You know, you have issues with currency, specifically related to currency controls. I mean, I think. I think it's Brazil is like the second most difficult country in the world as far as filing taxes because they have like nine different regimes that you have to follow. Um, so I've never talked to anyone that done business in Brazil that said, hey, it's, it's really a great place to do business, but it can be a great. It's just because it's difficult doesn't mean you can't make money. You know, so all the trends I see as far as the decoupling, I would say Latin America could benefit. And those three countries were really the ones I would say. Um, as far as Latin America as a whole, we actually put out an article today. Adam just posted it on, on legacy site. Uh, and basically, it's it's kind of a refresh of SoftBank's investment theory of why they basically deployed like about $8 billion here in the last couple of years. And what they're, what they're basically ascertaining is that Latin America is kind of the new China, right? And people always want, what, what is the next big thing? Uh, and so if you take Latin America as a whole and compare it, whether it's, you know, GDP parities or GDP per capita, you know, they're, they're very similar. You know, when you take the whole market together, the population of Latin America is like seven, 800 million people, you know, uh, GDP per capita is on par with China today, not, not China 20 years ago, China today. So it has drastically under, under investment from large institutional investments, including, including VCs. So, I mean, we were on a call this morning talking about funding for, for potential for GCC, just getting feelers out. And they have more people than ever that want to do institutional funding into Latin America. A lot of the money is coming from the Middle East, could be other, you know, South American families. It can be from Asia, you know, whether it's Singapore, Hong Kong, money wanting to flow out into USD assets. But there's a lot of money that needs to move these days. And in my opinion, developed markets are are oversaturated with capital, which drives down the yields. It's very difficult to find any arbitrage in developed markets. So if I was going to bet on a region, you know, Latin America is, is a heavy one, I would say. I'll be looking at for guys looking to invest outside of the U.S. It is, to Cole's point, in, in many ways. And I think what we're excited about through Legacy Group from an investment standpoint is so untapped in terms of opportunities versus capital that's coming into those opportunities. But we're now seeing those trends shifting a little bit where people like SoftBank are coming in, people like Sequoia Capital are coming in, seeing some of the success of the businesses that are being built here. I really think, you know, my perspective being on the ground, you've had about basically 20 years where Entrepreneurship at entrepreneurship at scale, in particular in Colombia, could really take off, and you're starting to see some of the money follow that. 
The world is getting more and more comfortable with LATAM. You've seen some big IPOs come out of LATAM this year, seeing more unicorns than ever. That's a global trend, but you're seeing that money that supports those valuations. So, you know, to the extent that we're on the ground here and we're finding things like Polygonis or we're building companies like GCC, for our accredited investor base, we get to be kind of the eyes and ears, but also bring that U.S experience to what we're doing here. And then we're also building a market knowledge where we can work with somebody like a SoftBank or a Sequoia, where they need people here who are finding opportunities for them and, and bringing them things that you know they might not be able to find as, as efficiently or, or know kind of what's going here. So I think we're really excited about what's going on in, in LATAM, Colombia in particular. And I, I see bullish trends kind of continuing into the, into the future. As more people see the potential for entrepreneurship and, and building things and changing, honestly, the one thing we talked about in the article today is kind of some of these defunct old institutions, whether it relates to banking or Jake, you're familiar with the process of buying property down here and kind of what that entails, getting lending, a lot of opportunity for disruption. And I think it's it's coming in the near term. Yeah, that's... Um... You know, one of the things that, I mean, obviously, um, I understand Spanish better than I, I speak it. I'm probably, you know, like like Cole, eighth grade, you know, Mexican Spanish uh, from public school. But I've, I've taken some lessons. I understand uh, when I'm down there and travel 100% agree with what you guys are saying. But I also see this as the call it the lens, the digitized lens of the world, as far as the optics. And, and now this is the new information age, you know, as people getting a chance to see, you know, some of the beauty of these countries. And, and obviously um, we didn't mention Venezuela. So like Venezuela is you look at the, the, you know, pictures from before maybe, or, you know, arguably the richest country from natural resources and just geographic beauty and absolute everything across the board. And then the way that socialism has completely eroded that away and where, I mean, you guys see it in, in Colombia, the, the refugees, the people that are starving to death coming over. And, and so I think that has permeated some of these other countries. And at least when I was there talking to people in, in Colombia, they're like a lot of the problems that we see in society has to do with socialism has to do. And the, 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 the refugees and the crime and the other things there's sometimes it's because the people are starving. So they're stealing stuff or creating, you know, this underbelly of, of society of because of socialism. And so they're hardcore going the other way to capitalism. And so that's like just invigorating to see that same thing across other countries in Mexico and, I mean, it's now even emerging a little bit in Peru, you know, some of the mining operations and some of these other things is just like, it's just starting to happen. And I think as people get access to that information, what you're doing, very simple, you know, assemblages of companies and really my successful or most successful exits were executing or uh, exiting to institutional capital. They don't have, they don't want to do the hard work. They just want to go buy Disneyland. Like they're just like, oh, you guys already assembled it. Great. And they'll, you know, that compression of, of cap rate or compression of exit price is, is really, really um, 
a real business play, an arbitrage. And so you got to go do that hard work. But so what you guys are doing. So I wanted to take this, you know, a little bit is you guys moving down to living in Latin America, travel and, and these other things is because it's not just business. And obviously there's opportunity to go make some money in these other markets, but you're getting a chance to travel in Latin America and speak there. What are you seeing kind of that hospitality space? And what was that transition moving from maybe a little bit different from you, Cole, moving from China and Hong Kong, but Adam from Texas down to a Latin American country. And what was that transition actually living outside of the States? Sure. So I would say one interesting thing I've noticed about hospitality down here recently, specifically as a result of COVID, is you have price wars now with hotels competing with, let's say, Airbnbs. So it used to be when I first came down here, maybe in 2015, Airbnbs would knock the socks off, you know, of hotels. Hotel pricing was always here. Airbnb is always here. Actually, I think the inverse is happening. A lot of times now in South America, due to the, the need to get you know, vacancies down uh, and they want to get occupancies up, you know, you're seeing a lot of these luxury hotels come significantly down in price. I think for pricing wars, it's a very interesting theme that you're seeing throughout. I, I think you're probably seeing it globally, but here in South America, especially because a lot of the Countries like Colombia or Mexico or Brazil, you know, they can't print money like the United States can. And just think you can print your way out of any kind of economic issue. You need to actually generate real value. In a lot of these countries that say the Dominican Republic, for instance, they rely on tourism, right? And so they're going to have price wars at all of their resorts, hotels, whatever to get in there. You know, they, you don't have to show 58 COVID passes to get in the Dominican Republic or to get into Mexico, or to get into Colombia. You know, as far as I say, personal freedom is, is concerned, I would say Latin America these days is one of the freest in the world. You know, you don't, you don't have to show, I don't have to go to the, to the restaurant all the time with my COVID card. For instance, my sister lives in Berlin. For her to take her kids into a grocery store, she needs like a COVID card and a PCR test to say, I've taken it this morning, I don't have COVID. It's like 800 things you got to do. So one area is pricing and hospitality. And I think, I think the other would be the, the, the more and more people are not traveling as far, but it's more like situational hospitality. So for instance, if you live in Medellin, maybe we just rent a finca for the weekend rather than to go through all the craziness of going to Spain or going to Miami or whatever. Like flying into the U.S. from Colombia is one of the most awful things <laughs> you can do. Like once you get outside of the US, you come back, it's, it's not a very friendly experience actually coming back in. So I would say more and more people are, are saying, look, if I can drive there in three or four hours, I'm just going to do that. I, I just avoid airlines in general. Things get canceled all the time. Uh, you know, South America is not immune to those cancellations. I've had, when I was flying back to the US over Christmas time, I think two of my flights got canceled last second. Like they give you a message like an hour before. Um, also that was fine in the US. So I don't know if it's South America's fault or the US fault, but I think more and more people are doing stuff nearby and you're doing, you know, stay abroad you know, for two days, but it's an hour away. So moving there, what was your experience living, you know, um, elsewhere? And now what has it been like that? You know, I think part of that, even the, the travel, you say coming back into the States is, 
a challenge, but painful. living in Colombia, what was that transition for and how has that been for you? I would say, I always take it in terms of like where specifically you're living. So Medellin is very, very different than Hong Kong, for instance. I mean, Hong Kong is one of the most active, most fun cities I've ever lived in, in my life. I would say it's on par with living in New York. Like it's, it's a really cool place to live. Now it's got its issues right now. I still have buddies that live there, some that are leaving because they don't love all the stuff that's going on. But still, I bet when when the dust settles and you go over to Hong Kong, you'll still have a pretty cool time living there. It's an, it's an incredible place. And it, it's a beautiful city. Medellin, I would say, is living in like a large town disguised as a city, right? It's 4 million people, but it feels like a town. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like New York. It doesn't feel like London. It doesn't feel like Tokyo. Uh, it's a different, it's a different style. It's a different rhythm. So Bogota would be more on par with what I would say is like a, a real city, maybe eight or 9 million people, but that one is not, not as pretty of a city. Take a, take a city that you don't think is very pretty. That's, that's Bogota, but it has more of the international feel to it. So I guess to me, it always depends on the specific city that you're coming from and where you're going to. To compare exactly. I, I don't think you could put Columbia into a basket and say all the cities are like this. I think all the major cities are have something unique about them. And when you go outside of the cities, it can it can be a whole different world. I mean, you can be on the side of a mountain overlooking nothing with no cellular phone access in Colombia. And if you're in downtown Colado, where we are right now, you think you're on Fifth Avenue in New York, right? I mean, it's it's developed, it's real office space, real restaurants, real everything. So Adam, you got married down there. You moved down there, you know. So uh, you know, what what was that experience moving down from Texas, from Buffalo to Texas, Texas now to Columbia? What was that that transition? And did you go straight to to Medellin? Have you lived anywhere else in Colombia or just just there? And then just lived in Medellin. Probably the probably the most popular question I get about being here is when am I gonna go back to the US? You know, there's I can say I don't I don't really miss it. I think, you know, everything to your point earlier in terms of digitalizing things and tourism expanding and people being able to work from from different locations, you know, it's it's worth getting out and exploring and seeing these different markets. I mean, we have opportunities to do business. The hospitality industry is excuse me, evolving restaurants are getting better. You know, I'm happy here with kind of the the lifestyle my my wife here spending the time with her family. I mean, it's you can have, I guess, call it the same life that people would think maybe only exists in in the U.S. that you could have kind of anywhere else. But you know, for a fraction of the price, um, and and you get to be part of something that's kind of building and and becoming new on a on a daily basis. You know, I lived in I've lived in markets like Cleveland where you see things kind of. I don't know, call it trending downwards from time, being in Buffalo where I was. And I see kind of Medellin and Colombia on the rise as more tourism comes here, more investment comes here. With that tourism, you get more of a hospitality feel, whether it's, you know, through the restaurants or the hotels that are coming, people basically building to the clientele. So it's fun even to see kind of the drastic changes I've seen just in, in the four years that I've been down here. So what are you guys seeing as the next opportunities 
in Colombia or what's, you know, you, you said Legacy's looking at new companies. Like what, what's, what's the future? What do you see as, as opportunity in, in LATAM knowing the market trends and seeing and living there? Oh, I can go first. I, I think that there's real opportunity for businesses here to compete with, call it, take Polygonus, for example. You know, there's no reason why those guys can't compete in kind of these streaming wars with studios in Atlanta or talent out of Hollywood from a design perspective. There's a lot of ways in which these businesses can be built and, and compete with kind of traditional traditional institutions. There's huge room for market disruption with respect to, as I mentioned earlier, banking, real estate purchases, all these different things where if people can come up with good solutions and if we can be a part of that even better, but you know, trying to find those opportunities and, and backing those would be great. You're seeing companies like New Bank come out and get 48 million clients because they're changing kind of the way that things are, are done in, in these traditional institutions in, in LATAM. And we're fortunate to be on the ground here and kind of see those things and hear about those opportunities, continuing to build kind of a, a name for ourselves with what we're doing with GCC and, and, and those things. But, you know, lots of opportunities coming from a legacy perspective and, and what we're and what we're doing and then executing on what we already have on our plate with respect to GCC, getting that business to you know a successful exit and doing right by our investors so that we continue to have the opportunities to build more and more businesses and open this market for people who might not otherwise have access or know how to tap in. So the digital artist, the polygonist things. So we, we talked briefly on it, the NFTs. And what do you see with that? I mean, because that's really a, uh, you know, a global kind of thing. Um, and, and obviously, I, I feel like Spanish-speaking countries are underrepresented on that. Um, and I think we're at the infancy stage of what is the metaverse. And, and since Polygonus is, is already creating some of those, like, where do you see possibilities for them, not just from a, a studio perspective, but in this new Web3 metaverse NFT world? Sure, I'll, I'll take that one. So I, I think there's numerous applications. We actually had a chat with the CEO of Polygonus about this yesterday and where he sees kind of the world flowing for NFTs. So you see today on OpenSea, you have a lot about the artistic aspect of NFTs. And we talked about that before the call, Jake. Someone puts a picture of an ape on an NFT and sells it for $5 million. And everyone thinks it's the greatest thing in the world. And I, I would disagree. You know, I, you always have an art market, right? And if Sotheby's can, Sotheby's has been selling digital art as well now for about the past year. Uh, and I think you'll always have that aspect if something's pretty and someone wants to put it on a wall or put it on your cell phone or put it in a USB, you know, people will pay money for it. But I, I think it'll have more applicability for, for utility in the future. And so that's one thing we talked about before the call as well, Jake, is, you know, there, there's companies out there. And I think Adam gave me the uh, example yesterday is, you, you know, Nike's coming out with an NFT and they say, hey, these are new shoes that are going to come out in the future. You can buy an NFT for $100. The shoes are going to cost $500 or whatever it is. And then the NFT is tradable within people. Then you have, it's basically a prepayment on, in your token to get these shoes in the future. And maybe you pay the flux balance at the end. I think you're going to have numerous 
items like that come out, whether it's concert tickets or it's, you know, prepayments on shoes or, you know, it's a secret pass to get into an underground whiskey bar that Adam's going to buy for all of us. You know, who knows? You know, it can be it can be anything. But I think you're going to see the the usability and the utility of it needs to increase over time to really demonstrate value to make it a sustainable business and a sustainable, let's say, use case for it on a, on a macro scale. I think you're going to see things like video game production. It's very easy to utilize the NFTs. You say, look, I have this character and, and that I want to have in this open realm video game. In order to have the character, you need to buy the NFT. The NFT creates a character, and then you can add on different thematic things, whether it's warrior paint or battle axes or health cheats or whatever it is. You can use NFTs in, in digital digital pieces to you know change the attributes of the game itself and the experience for the user. I would say that's where I think these guys are probably going to focus more of their time. I find it unlikely that they'll do pure, pure kind of just pumping out things just in seeing what sticks to a wall. I know that they are working with some really high-end artists right now, uh, street artists in in Colombia, in Medellin specifically, and they're going to do an, an arts NFT round, which is going to be interesting, but you're actually going to see the art, for instance, on the walls, in painted on the wall of the city. You get the NFT, you get the interviews with the artists that they do here in the studios. So it's more of a consolidated package related to an art product rather than just saying, here's a monkey on the screen, you know? And I think, I, I agree with you, Jake. I think you're at the beginning of what it's going to become. And tomorrow, whatever my thesis is today could 100% change. These guys are so intelligent. They, they have so many different programming codes that they're analyzing on a daily basis that the, you know, the coding framework that they use today Maybe tomorrow they say, man, this other one's way better. We need to do this. And then if we do this, we have the capabilities to do this. So I think it just accelerates upon itself so quickly that it, one, it's very difficult to predict what's going to happen. But no matter what happens, I, I do think there's a fundamental chain, change with how transparent things can become. And I think the product offering from almost any business can become more interesting as a result of the technology coming out today. There'll be so many use cases you can use for almost any business and every business is going to be looking what happens in this metaverse space, not just the video game guys. Yeah. And I think what it is, is that there's so many really smart people, like you said, as far as these, you know, polygonous guys like uh, Jose and he's, I mean, they're wicked smart, like just sitting down there, you can feel it. Like you can feel it, just the energy of, and I've been in your office there and, you know, but there's also some really, really smart people that I know from Silicon Valley and from you know Austin, Texas, and doing these other things like that, that have gone down the rabbit hole of, let's say, blockchain, cryptocurrency, NFTs, Web3, and in, in the way that this, of this new world, metaverse, and we're doing some really, really high-level stuff before, and they just like abandon it. Because they're like, I'm going to now commit all my energy to this new thing, this NFTs, this Web3 and these other things. Because they're like, it's going to change. There's going to be a paradigm shift of the way that business is structured altogether because of this new 
let's call it blockchain in which everything is going to be built upon disrupting title companies, you know, financial services, things like that, the, the, the actual verification process. And, and, and so like you, and maybe I'm further behind than you guys, but it's the infancy of just starting to understand this and getting my head around it. I think you nailed on a couple of points right there. The, you know, IRL, the, the in real life, you know, experiential component of the NFTs is going to have the long tail value of it. But, and, and so let me walk through kind of, um, you know, like you said, exclusive rights, like the Polygonist guys, you know, doing stuff and, and the interview behind it with the artist, you know, getting exclusive content because you own that NFT that has some collectability to it. But then also, does that also give them access to future drops of their artwork or to the Nike shoes or to the whatever. Those are the things that I also think when there's too much money flowing around, like we've kind of discussed, there's too much money flowing around the world because every central bank just printed equivalents of trillions of dollars. And, you know, people are looking for homes for this new capital is that's also permeates down. There's a certain, the rich are getting richer as they spend it on stupid stuff. You know, and there is value in why does a fashion designer of Louis Vuitton sell a bag for $20,000 when you can buy that same exact product in China for $50 worth of raw goods? It's the same exact thing, but it's because it's got this brand. So there is an arbitrage and I think it's just crazy. Like, I mean, I, you can't even comprehend the vastness of opportunities that lay in this. And it's almost like you said, the creativeness in which you can approach it is what's really exciting. And I think that's what's also exciting about what you guys are doing. Latin America is just about creative structure. And I think it's unlocking this entrepreneurial lens of the world that is going to be so exciting to watch over the next 10, 20 years. And obviously seeing what you guys are doing, I'm super, super excited to watch. And at least obviously as an investor in, in the coffee company and others, super excited about that. I'd like to take this and kind of wrap this up is what are some resources? What led you guys to these things for somebody that's looking to move to Latin America or move to a foreign country or maybe invest, you know, offshore uh, or just looking at market other things like what, what are some of those things that you found the valuable and then that they can go look is some, some, you know, strategic or, or tactical next steps for them. Say a good one is just to get out and explore. You know, if you have like, Oh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm scared to move to this place because of X, go see if your assumptions are actually true. That's, I'd say the, the, the best way to do it. Maybe it's even better than you thought it was going to be. So that, that's been my path as well. Yeah. And that was almost the exact thing I was going to say. <laughs> Thanks for stealing that one. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you, it's all experiential. Like I can write all the reports on Columbia and say how great it is. And Adam can agree with it. And, you know, for you, Jake, it might be like, I don't like any of that stuff. Right. You're not going to get it from reading. Right. You need to go and experience things and live them. So anyone that can work from abroad, for instance, and you say, look, you know, I can work from home. I work from Google. You know, the number one thing I would say, if guys are thinking about doing it, take your Google salary and go live in Mexico or Croatia or Czech Republic or Vietnam or whatever, anywhere that you're interested in, and do it from there. 
right? If you're thinking about it, just do it and do it for a short time period. Give yourself a safety net and say, I'm going to do this for a month and I'm, I'm going to come back. You know, you need to go out there and experience. You need to make make some friends, talk to people that actually live it and do it. Uh, but if you're sitting in your in your house in upstate New York, it's tough. You know, it's tough. It's like, man, I, I don't really feel comfortable moving outside of my comfort zone. You got to take steps more than just reading stories to, to get to where you're trying to go. If you're thinking about it, you have to like dip your toe in and then dip your toe in further if you're going to actually take a jump. Yeah. So what about an investor? Is there anything that, you know, caused you? Because you guys use a lot of data. I mean, you guys, a lot of financial modeling and other things like that. You know, you just didn't run in wild and, you know, throw money at Columbia. So if you're an investor and you're looking to invest outside of the U.S., um, what what are some things that they can be doing? I think I know you can speak to this, of course, Jake, but I'm sure I'm sure your experience coming down here gave you some confirmation beyond just seeing videos and data of seeing the market, seeing the, the, the quality of people that can be brought onto teams, you know, from meeting our CEO and the people within our with our company. And then I guess, you know, getting a point of view from somebody that you trust and that, you know, and, and, and looking at it that way understanding the opportunities that are out there, you know, we see a lot and we could get into kind of like, you know, what the, what the alternatives are, but, you know, for us investors, it's, I think meeting the management team, understanding what the business environment might look like uh, and, and, and going from there and seeing, you know, kind of what, what really is the, the opportunity here. It's, but that's not my best advice or the most concrete, but I would say experiencing it, understanding what the market looks like, spending some time in it, getting a feel for whether you think what the, the business idea is that you're looking at or the industry you're looking at, how it functions and works in that market so that you can actually make a intelligent evaluation of, of what the opportunity might be. Yeah. I agree. I agree on all that. And I would say, you know, you need to do a self-assessment on what's your risk profile? What are, you, what are your actual goals? Like for me and today, if I was a U.S. investor, public markets would, even, even with the dip recently, I still would, I wouldn't touch it unless I had some kind of insider tip on, on what to invest in. You know, they're so hot. Uh, whether you're talking about debt or equity, you know, I, I really think alternatives are the name of the game. And if you're once you're in the alternatives realm, you need to know the sponsors, just like Adam says, and you need to operate in countries that you that you feel comfortable. And for an individual investor, if you're not a professional investor, you know, you it, it is a bit of an emotional it is an emotional decision. You need to feel comfortable before you place capital somewhere. So sometimes it is about going to meet people in person or having talks with the sponsors or management teams. But to me, my, my biggest recommendation for U.S. investors who are looking to make real yield is you have to look at alternatives. And I'd say whether it's private equity or private debt, those are the two that the markets that I would recommend. Any U.S. investor, if they're not exposed to either one of those, they should be. Yeah, that's, that's great, great advice. And, uh, you know, 100% agree. Just because, I mean, if you're just trading on S&P or EFTs or ETFs as far as uh, you're going to perform just as anybody else. And I mean, inflation was 7%. 
did your, did your portfolio perform 7%, you know, and you were like, Oh, I got 5.2 and be like, cool. Well, you lost. Uh, so yeah, I mean, obviously if you're not, uh, trending above that and getting double digit returns, you're, you're moving backwards. So, um, Man, this is exciting. Uh, I, I really appreciate you guys taking your time out of your day to jump in on this call. I feel like I could, you know, continue to talk shop and talk these things forever. Uh, I have a lot of fascination about the the country and what you guys are doing. Again, the the, the collective kinship of spending time together and then investing together. So, um, I do want to wrap this up. Uh, to respect your guys' time and obviously make the, the podcast, you know, uh, into a little bit more bite-sized for some of the people. So really, really excited again. Uh, thank you very much, Adam. Thank you, Cole. Uh, excited to follow up on your journey. Where can people find what you're doing? How, and then also what can they do if they're looking, uh, to help you out, you know, opportunities, investors, you know, the, the sorts put this as your chance to, to ask out to the world and to the audience. If you guys want to get a sense of our portfolio and the things we're doing, you can visit the website, legacy-group.co. If you want to talk to us directly about any of the opportunities or, or things that we're doing, you can find me, adam.j at legacy-group.co and then cole at cole.shepherd at legacygroup.co. And we'll find people individually and love to connect with more and more folks. Awesome, guys. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Jake. I hope you enjoyed that episode today on Passive Wealth Principles Podcast. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to this on. If the episode made you think of someone, go ahead and take a screenshot and share this episode with them. You can tag us or find us as a podcast at Catch Knives or me personally at jake.realestate. For those investors that are listening to this and want to be able to take advantage of distressed investing opportunities, a perfect place to start is my best-selling book, which also happens to be called Catching Knives. It's a full breakdown and guide on how I and many of my partners take advantage of opportunities in distressed commercial real estate. Go to www.catchkniveswithans.com and grab the book there as there's a few book bonuses that I know you'll love. Once again, www.catchkniveswithans.com. Take care and I'll see you in the next episode.